This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, thank you very much to, to Richard and the Taubman Foundation uh, for having me. And I just want to point out, while two of those three stories did involve Republicans, there are a number of other stories that the Obama White House was equally offended by. So we are, we are an equal opportunity offender. I, I, I don't want to make it seem as if we're just going after Republicans. Um, so I usually write about contemporary politics and national security matters in Washington. This is a little bit far afield for me, um, involving a historical matter. Uh, but the way I got onto this was through the newspaper, through the New York Times. About four years ago now, uh, I got a tip from an old source of mine at the Justice Department who said that there was a, a secret government report involving the history of the Nazis in America, both the, uh, the efforts of government officials to find and deport them beginning in the 1980s, and before that, the efforts of the government to use some of them as spies and scientists and have relationships with ex-Nazis. For whatever reason, the government had been sitting on this report for years, had refused to put it out, and, and this source uh, was suggesting that there was an important piece of history that needed to be put on the public record, and I should try and try and get a hold of this. It, it almost sounded like a, a Pentagon Papers for Nazis, this secret report. Now, if any of you are in public relations or if you know any reporters, here's a tip. One surefire way to get a reporter's attention is to tell him that there's a secret report that the government does not want you to see. So that, that, that's almost like waving a slab of meat in front of a hungry dog and watching the reporter jump at it. So I, I was... Uh, fair to say, interested very quickly. And I was determined to try and get a hold of this report. And through a bit of luck and some phone calls, I, I was able to get the report. It, it ended up being a front-page story uh, in the Times. But it was the kind of story that even before I'd finished writing it, I think I, I, I realized that there was a whole other um, layer of complexity to this story that you couldn't really do justice to in a 2,000-word newspaper piece. Um, the, some of the details in this report, it was about six or 700 pages, were so fascinating. I remember a few that stuck in my mind, uh, like a, um, one, a Justice Department prosecutor who was involved in trying to confirm that, uh, that Mengele, Dr. Mengele, the doctor of death, had really died in Bolivia in the 1980s. And before the days of DNA, this report said that he kept a piece of scalp in his desk for several weeks, trying to figure out what to do with it and what forensic tests could be done to, to confirm whether or not that really was Mengele who died in Bolivia or not. And the, the details in the report about, about Cold War politics and how that affected our, the ease with which Nazis had come into the country. Um, this was, in my view at least, a, a, a shameful and really untold period in post-war, uh, uh, post-war history. There are a few books that came out of, of great quality in the 1980s on the issue of Nazis in America, but there's a whole treasure trove of declassified war crime files that have only become public in the last 15 years under orders of Congress, and they provided me with a whole new pathway to, to researching this. Um, and in my research, there were many, many things that, that both shocked and, and repulsed me uh, uh, as a journalist, uh, as an American. Um, the ease with which thousands of Nazis were able to get into America after the war, uh, the use by the government, the CIA, the FBI, other intelligence agencies of, uh, of Nazis as spies and scientists, even knowing the, the war crimes that they were involved with, uh, the fact that the, co- the go- country and the government 
government were essentially indifferent to this for the better part of 25 years before uh, around 1980 when we started investigating them. But I think the, the one thing that, that shocked and repulsed me most had nothing to do with the Nazis themselves. It, it had to do with the Holocaust survivors. And that, was, that surprised me because it wasn't a group that I planned to really examine in my, in my research. It was a, a group that, as, as horrific as the plight of the survivors was, seemed separate from the question of how the Nazis got into America. But as I did my research, I, I began to realize that they were really flip sides of, of the same question. Um, because to understand how horribly easy it was for thousands of Nazis to get into America, you first have to understand how horribly difficult it was for thousands of survivors uh, to, to get out of the concentration camps, even after the Allies won the war in the spring of 1945. You know, there's been a lot of talk the last few weeks with the 70th anniversary approaching um, of the discovery of Auschwitz about the liberation of Auschwitz, the Auschwitz, the liberation of the camps. And I sort of cringe at that word, um, knowing what I now know, because liberation was really sort of a mockery for uh, the survivors who were kept in those same camps, in the concentration camps, for months and sometimes years before visas were available to the United States and to Israel. So if you'll indulge me for a minute, I'll read um, a bit from the first chapter of the book, uh, which is called Liberation. Spring 1945, Fahrenwald displaced persons camp outside Munich. While the Nazis fled, their victims were left to languish. These were the lucky ones, hundreds of thousands of Jews, Catholics, gays, Jehovah's Witnesses, communists, Roma, and other quote-unquote parasites enslaved in Nazi concentration camps who somehow had managed to survive Hitler's genocidal killing machine. Yet even after Germany's defeat, the survivors remained in prison for months in the same camps where the Nazis had first put them to rot. The names of their jailers had changed, with the dark Nazi swastikas now replaced by the bright-colored flags of the Allied victors flying above the camps. But the barbed wire fences and armed guards still encircled them. They were in a post-war purgatory, living conditions that, as a high-level emissary of President Truman would painfully have to acknowledge, were little different from those imposed on them by the Nazis themselves. Jakob Bieber, a Jew who survived the Nazi purge in the Ukraine, was among the masses confined in the American DB camp at Fahrenwald. We felt like so much surplus junk, Bieber would write of his confinement, human garbage which the governments of the world wished would somehow go away. Now consider, again, after the Allies had won the war and were in charge of those displaced persons camps, that you had Jews and thousands of other survivors living, living with food rations so measly that you still had uh, prisoners who were dying of starvation and malnutrition and, and disease from the diseases that were rampant in the camps. And you had a formal policy by the Allied commanders, including General George S. Patton, um, who ran the displaced persons camps, uh, of not providing extra rations to the Jews um, above and beyond what Nazi POWs were getting, because that would be seen as giving them preferential treatment. And he rejected that idea. The conditions were so horrible that you had a black market that ran rampant in many of the camps, uh, where uh, foodstuffs and basic human living material were traded on the black 
market exchange, and the Allies responded by quashing that black market. You had violent raids where, in fact, survivors who had survived Hitler's killing machine were then killed in black market raids by the Allies after they tried to get get food to keep to, to sustain their, their to to make it through the day. Uh, and believe it or not, you even had some prisoners who killed themselves because their plight was so horrible. You see here a sign saying, we demand to open the gates of Palestine. Like Jakob Bieber said, people felt they had nowhere to go. Um, I, I did a fellowship at the U.S. Holocaust Museum for much of last year, and there was another researcher there who was studying the music, Yiddish music, that the Holocaust survivors in those DP camps um, had sung, mostly women and children, uh, with these, these heartbreaking plaintive uh, lyrics uh, about um, how the gates to the world were closed and they had nowhere to go. Uh, I mentioned that President Truman sent someone over to the camps to inspect them physically and to find out whether or not the complaints that Jewish groups were raising were really true or not. Could it possibly be the case that we had just won the war and yet, yet tens of thousands of people were still living in horrific conditions months and months later? So this is what Earl Harrison, who was the dean of the Pennsylvania Law School, wrote after he inspected a number of those camps. And even by the standards of Washington reports, which are often quite blistering and quite scathing, this is about as blistering as I've ever seen. He said, as matters now stand, we appear to be treating the Jews as the Nazis treated them, except that we do not exterminate them. This was in late 1945, months after the Allies had won the war. I mentioned General George S. Patton, uh, a war hero. Old Blood and Guts was his nickname. Uh, he's a, a, a legend in military circles. In fact, he's the subject of a, uh, of a quite fawning biography now by uh, Bill O'Reilly. It's a bestseller. Uh, remembered uh, quite heroically in, in the annals of modern history. Yet he was uh, essentially responsible for, in those early months, the disdainful treatment of the prisoners under his watch at the displaced persons camps. Truman uh, passed on his report to Patton and demanded answers as to how this was allowed to happen. Now, Patton, rather than responding as, uh, as someone might to uh, calls of such uh, horrific nature, was angry. He wrote in a journal that he kept, which I found a copy of uh, at the U.S. Holocaust Museum. When I first read what Patton wrote in response to Earl Harrison's report, I thought it might be a forgery. It was difficult to imagine that uh, a famous war general had written words that were so uh, so baldly anti-Semitic and hate-filled, yet this is what Patton wrote after that report came out. Quote, Harrison and his ilk believe that the displaced person is a human being, which he is not, and this applies particularly to the Jews who are lower than animals. Laying bare the rabid anti-Semitism that infected the American refugee effort, Patton complained of how the Jews in one DP camp with, quote, no sense of human relationships, end quote, would defecate on the floors and live in filth like lazy locusts. He told of taking General Eisenhower to tour a makeshift synagogue that the Jews in one camp had set up to celebrate the holy day of Yom Kippur. Quote, we entered the synagogue, which was packed with the greatest stinking mass of humanity I have ever seen. This was Eisenhower's first glimpse of the DPs, Patton wrote, so it was all new to him. Quote, of course, I have seen them since the beginning and marveled that beings alleged to be made in the form of God can look the way they do or act the way they act. 
Here you see Patton on the right with General Eisenhower, uh, later to be President Eisenhower, in the middle, uh, giving one of those very tours of, of the camps. Um, Eisenhower eventually fired Patton because of his refusal to denazify the camps. Uh, Patton uh, was, was outwardly defiant in using Nazi civilians to run the DP camps in lording over the Jews, the communists, the gays, the gypsies, and others who, who lived in those camps. And he told his men that if the Nazi civilians are the people best positioned to run these camps, then he better, they better damn well use them. I also tell the story in the book of Patton's sort of odd fascination and admiration for those Nazi prisoners under his watch. There was a barracks that where the scientists uh, were kept who had built Hitler's famous V2 rockets that were used to bomb London and Antwerp and other parts of, of Europe uh, and were really a technological marvel at the time that the Allies could not match. And, he, and Patton walked over to the barracks and called out the top-ranking scientist there, a man by the name of General Walter Dornberger. And he said, are you Dornberger? And the general said, Yavol, Herr General. And Patton said, you're the one who built the V2s? And he said, again, Yavol, Herr General. And Patton pulled three cigars from his pocket and gave them to Dornberger. And he said, well, congratulations. We couldn't have done it. And in fact, Dornberger, along with about 1,600 other scientists, was brought to the United States under what was at first a secret program called Operation Paperclip uh, to exploit their technological uh, advantages that they brought to their rockets and to help the United States beat the Soviets to the moon in 1969. Um, and yet, at the same time, Patton was openly disdainful of the prisoners under his watch. And there were the, the visas to the United States were practically non-existent in those early years. There were a few thousand at most in the first two or three years after the war for German uh, for, for for survivors in the camps inside Germany. Uh, and if you look at the congressional record, the reasons are pretty clear uh, that that lawmakers and policymakers believe that the survivors were people. Who who were lazy and felt entitled and did not deserve American citizenship. Now, that was in stark contrast to visas for Eastern Europe, uh, and there were about 400,000 visas at that same time that were issued to people from Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Ukraine, and elsewhere. And these were people who were seen, again, according to the congressional record, as people of good stock, as hardworking people, and who people who, uh, not coincidentally, were staunchly anti-communist. Uh, uh, at this point, the U.S.'s aims were clear in trying to uh, ramp up for this new Cold War that we were about to start after defeating the Nazis, and refugees from uh, Eastern Europe, staunchly anti-communist refugees, were welcomed with open arms in America. Now, the vast majority of those 400,000 were no doubt legitimate war refugees in, in every sense of the word. These are people who, whose countries had just been occupied during the war by the Nazis, by Hitler, and who were about to be taken over by the Soviet empire uh, for generations to come. But it's also clear from my research and elsewhere that a not insignificant number of those 400,000, 400, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of four or 5,000 uh, refugees who got into America were, were senior Nazi collaborators. People were not victims in any way of the Nazi occupation, but were willing participants in it and collaborators with Hitler and the Gestapo in carrying out the Holocaust. These were people 
like Alexandrus Lelakis, who you see here on the left, in Lithuania in 1938. Lelakis was the head of a notorious secret security police in Lithuania, in Vilnius, in 1938, and was a top collaborator with the Gestapo in interrogating, rounding up, and imprisoning thousands and thousands of Jews in Vilnius. Lelakis was the man who would sign the arrest warrants for people like uh, an eight-year-old girl named Gita Kaplan in Vilnius and thousands of others, jail them in the city prison, and then turn them over to the Gestapo, where 60,000 Jews were taken, usually marched about seven miles outside, uh, outside the city to a place called Panerai at a death camp, and then machine gunned to death uh, in one of the worst massacres in the Holocaust. And yet, Lelakis was able to come to the United States, and you see him here in his naturalization photo in 1976, with the help of the CIA. Lelakis, like a number of the others who I write about in my book, was a known Nazi collaborator who was hired by the CIA despite his past in the CIA files, which have now been declassified. I mentioned that there's a huge treasure trove of information that's become uh, public only in the last 15 years. You can find declassified war crime files from the CIA where they say that, that Lelakis was a known collaborator with the Gestapo and was probably involved in the massacres of large number of Jews by the Nazis at Vilnius in the uh, early 1940s. And yet the CIA gave him a job as a spy in Europe after the war because he was seen as an asset in this bold new Cold War. He was paid about $1,700 a month plus a carton of cigarettes for his trouble. Yet he and others like this man, Otto von Bolschwing, who was also a CIA spy in Europe, were not particularly good spies. I think that's the, perhaps one of the horrible ironies of this situation was that the United States was putting to use hundreds of spies around the world who had known ties to the Nazis in, uh, in Europe, in the Middle East, in Latin America, in Australia, even here in the United States. And yet many of them were uh, mediocre spies or worse. It will probably surprise no one in this room that the Nazis we hired as spies for uh, a salary, cartons of cigarettes, or liquor often turned out to be thieves, cheats, embezzlers, liars, and occasionally even Soviet double agents. Uh, these were the people we were using in the Cold War against the Soviets and overlooking their Nazi pasts. I tell the story in the book of, uh, of Otto von Bolschwing, who you see here, who was assigned in Austria in the 1950s, in 1954, on a spy mission to deliver a satchel full of spy documents with photos and the real names of other uh, anti-Soviet spies to a contact in Hamburg. He got on a train with his satchel, got off at the other end of Hamburg, only to realize that the satchel, instead of containing these top-secret classified spy documents, contained pajamas and men's toiletries because he had mixed them up with another man's bag. Now, you or I, if we had botched an assignment so badly, and we also had the arguably a black mark of being a top, uh, a top Nazi in our, in our recent past, would likely have been fired. Yet, von Bolschwing not only continued his work with the CIA, but the CIA relocated him and his family to New York, him, his wife, and his teenage son. And they did so, they said, as a quote-unquote reward for his loyal service in Austria after the war, and in view of, this again is their word, not mine, the innocuousness of his work with the Nazis. Uh, now, innocuousness is a strange word to use when you consider 
that Otto von Bolschwing was a top aide to this man, who some of you may recognize. This is Adolf Eichmann, who was the architect of the final solution. Von Bolschwing was uh, a top advisor in the SD's Jewish Affairs Office, and he wrote these hideous white papers in the years before the, the war started for Eichmann. Here's a sampling of, uh, of something he wrote called in a paper that was called The Jewish Problem. And this is in 1938, I'm sorry, 1937, before the start of massive extermination at a point when Eichmann, von Bolschwing, and other top Nazis were trying to terrorize the Jews into fleeing the country. Von Bolschwing wrote, a largely anti-Jewish atmosphere must be created among the people in order to form the basis for the continued attack and the effective exclusion of them. The most effective means is the anger of the people leading to excesses in order to take away the sense of security from the Jews. Even though this is an illegal method, it has had a long-standing effect. The Jew has learned a lot through the programs of the past century and fears nothing as much as a hostile atmosphere which can go spontaneously against him at any time. So so this was the work that the CIA would declare in its own files was innocuous in their view as far as his own role with the Nazis. And in fact, von Bolschwing would be protected by the CIA for over 25 years in the United States. Uh, you may remember that in 1960, von Bolschwing's old boss, Eichmann, was captured by the Israelis in Argentina in a, in a famous raid that would lead to one of the great trials of the century in Israel and Eichmann's uh, execution. Von Bolschwing was very worried, according to the files that I looked at um, in the National Archives, that the Israelis would come after him next. So he went back to the CIA for help. And in fact, his old CIA handlers met with him in a restaurant in New York where they assured him that they would continue to protect him in the United States. They would not tell the Israelis who he was or where he was. They would not tell the Justice Department. They would not tell the INS. They would not tell the White House. They would not tell anyone else. There was only one caveat. At that point, Von Bolschwing was such a successful businessman in New York, he worked in the export-import business, that he would have been nominated for a job with the State Department in India on an export panel. And the CIA was worried that if that nomination continued, his past, to Eich his past ties to Eichmann and his role with the CIA were bound to come out publicly. So they said, if you want our protection, you have to give up that job. Now, believe it or not, von Bolschwing at first protested. He said, you know, I've earned that job. I want it. The CIA said, you either give up that job or we out you. He gave up the job, and it was another 20 years before... I'm sorry, I thought I had a picture of him. Another 20 years before von Bolschwing was discovered by the Justice Department living in Sacramento uh, on his deathbed. There are many others like them. Just to, just to look at a couple, this is a man by the name of Walter Hilger. You see him here in his Nazi uniform. He was a top foreign affairs specialist on Soviet affairs for Hitler. He was with Hitler towards the end of the war in one of his bunkers. And his immediate boss, a Nazi general named Ribbentrop, his ties to war crimes were so hideous that his boss was executed Nuremberg. Not only wasn't Hilger executed, but he was brought to the United States and lived in Washington for years as a covert analyst for the CIA. He would give briefings at Langley on Soviet affairs, and he lived openly in Washington. He was even listed in the white pages, and he held academic cover with institutions like Harvard. He was completely unremorseful. He wrote his memoirs years later, and he said that for anyone who thinks he has anything to apologize for, he has no regrets. These were the costs of war. And it was years uh, before anyone realized who he was or what he had done with the Nazis. 
This is another man, Arthur Rudolph, one of the scientists that I mentioned, the 1600 who came here under Operation Paperclip. Now, this at first was a secret program when the United States, within months of the end of the war, began bringing dozens of rocketeers, um, including Rudolph and his boss, Werner von Braun, and his boss, General Dornberger, to the United States, to military bases in Alabama, in Texas, Ohio, here in in California, in San Diego. Uh, But the secret soon got out. It was difficult, the Pentagon would learn, to uh, hide the identities of dozens of uh, elderly Germans with thick German accents in Alabama and Texas. And, and word soon came out that this program was afoot. Now, the Pentagon at that point in late 1945, early 1946, uh, achieved what I think was a masterful public relations ploy, and that was to acknowledge this program uh, had been created and to really embrace it uh, with the idea that these Nazis were really Nazis in name only under the official program that was approved by President Truman and later by President Eisenhower. You could not be a quote-unquote ardent Nazi under the program. If you were an ardent Nazi, you would not be allowed in. And the Pentagon quickly whitewashed the records of dozens of these scientists. They held photo ops. They held press conferences when uh, some of the German scientists in Texas would greet their wives coming over from, from Germany with flowers at the train station. They even put some of them on postage stamps. Uh, And these were uh, seen as American success stories who were going to beat the Soviets to the moon. Now, what someone like Arthur Rudolph shows is that this was essentially uh, a cover story, a concoction. You see Arthur Rudolph here with uh, his Nazi identification card. If you look in the top left and the bottom right, you can even see the Nazi swastikers. What not being an ardent Nazi meant for someone like Arthur Rudolph was that he ran the production factory in Germany during the war, where tens of thousands of slave laborers built the V-2 rockets for Arthur Rudolph and uh, Werner von Braun. And an estimated 10,000 would die there because the conditions were so horrific. Uh, Disease was rampant. uh, Malnutrition and starvation was everywhere. And for those unluckiest among them who were suspected of sabotaging the rocket parts or perhaps not meeting their daily quotas, they were brought to the center of the factory uh, underneath a, a huge crane while all the other prisoners were gathered around, and they were hanged. This was a lesson to the other prisoners that they better not mess with the Nazis' machinery. Now, Rudolph was completely um, uh, indifferent to the suffering and plight of those tens of thousands of uh, slave laborers. Most of them, by the way, were not Jews, but were POWs from France, Poland, Russia, and elsewhere. Uh, He would claim years later that, as far as he knew, they were happy and content, and they were well-fed, and no one seemed to have any problems there, despite the dozens who were dying every day from disease and malnutrition. And later on, when he was confronted with his crime, he said, well, I did my job. That was usually the line that that you would hear often from people like Rudolph and his boss, Werner von Braun, uh, who did not operate out of the factory, unlike Arthur Rudolph, who was the production manager, but did visit it as many as 15 times. And von Braun, who became famous as as the father of the modern space program and was even uh, here on Disney Sunday morning specials, likewise said that you did what you did in the name of war, and he he made no apologies for using thousands of slave labor to build those V-2 rockets. 
This is another doctor, uh, another Nazi scientist who came over uh, under Operation Paperclip by the name of Dr. Hubertus Strughold. He was one of about 40 doctors who were brought to Texas, to an airbase there, to work on the U.S. efforts to keep astronauts and pilots alive in space. What Werner von Braun was to putting the rockets in space, Dr. Strughold was to keeping them, keeping the pilots alive. Now, what the Pentagon did not say publicly about his record was that he basically plied his trade during the war, during World War II, uh, on prisoners at Dachau under uh, hideous conditions of human experimentation on both children and adults. You see him here on the right with a flight simulator that he set up in Texas. This would be a place where VIPs like Lyndon Johnson or the Shah of Iran would go to sort of check out the bells and whistles uh, and the gravitational experiments that Strughold was doing. He also had a flight simulator not unlike this in Dachau during the war at the concentration camp. That was where they would put children and subject them to far greater levels of uh, pressure and gravitational pull to the point that many of them died. Uh, And he also would subject prisoners at Dachau to uh, fatal doses of putrid seawater. The idea there was to find ways of keeping German Nazi pilots alive when they crashed into the sea. The Germans were having a problem with uh, the pilots surviving the crash, but then dying from overexposure to putrid seawater and dying of poisoning, essentially. And Strughold and the doctors under him would, uh, would do experiments to see how much putrid seawater the body could safely sustain. Not surprisingly, many of those patients died in the course of those experiments. Um, and Strughold held a sort of clinical view of this. He would take part in Nazi conferences that were organized by the SS during the war and would push for more human experiments to, uh, in order to gain better results. For him, it was all about the science, and that was what would continue uh, not only in Dachau but in the United States, where he became known as the father of space medicine because his contribution to aviation was so, so huge. And believe it or not, until just a few years ago, there were still awards in his honor um, from space associations and some colleges and military bases in Texas. Now, I don't want you to come away from this with the, uh, with the idea that this book is all villains. There are a few heroes, and one of them is the man you see here on the left, a journalist in the 1960s by the name of Chuck Allen. I had never heard of Allen when I began my research, but he, he soon became a hero of mine because I learned that he had written these exhaustive exposés for uh, obscure publications that no one had ever heard of, often communist-leaning publications, some small Jewish publications, uh, on the existence of Nazis in the United States. He also held rallies to draw attention to the problem. You see a poster for one on the right in 1963 in Brooklyn. He held others here in Los Angeles, uh, others in Chicago. Uh, And he would try and reveal the fact to the public that you had people who had been identified as war criminals at Nuremberg now living in the United States freely with uh, little investigation or scrutiny. Now, not only did most of uh, the country ignore uh, ignore Chuck Allen, but the FBI not only went so far as to put a trail on him for years. 
They, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the, the famous director of the FBI, signed a warrant, a secret warrant, declaring him a communist subversive and a national security threat in the 1960s. And he was wiretapped for years. And FBI agents would trail him around New York and Washington and open his mail coming from Eastern Europe as he was trying to do his reporting to gather evidence uh, on various Nazi figures like Dr. Hubertus Struggled. Um, and it would be another 20 years before the country as a whole would begin to recognize what Chuck Allen had been saying since the early 1960s, that in fact there were many, many Nazis, dozens, hundreds, perhaps thousands, living openly in the United States, and no one was doing anything about it. Uh, At In 1980, under pressure from Congress, primarily um, uh, Brooklyn Congresswoman Elizabeth Holtzman, the Justice Department did finally, belatedly, open um, a whole new team of investigators, uh, historians, and lawyers to, to go after and try and deport uh, dozens and dozens of Nazis. Unfortunately, by that point, they were uh, middle-aged or elderly. Uh, The evidence was stale. Legal problems were enormous. And many of them would live out their lives in the United States. It was a tragic case, in my view, of uh, too little and too late. And with that, I think we will open it up to questions. So uh, let me remind you that this is being um, uh, preserved for UCTV, and we want to get your questions on the microphone so that they can be integrated into the final versions of this presentation uh, that can be viewed later. So let's start with the first questions, but please come forward to the microphones on stage left, stage right. Sure, hello. Thank you so much. There you go. Um, it's well known that the State Department was fairly anti-Semitic. Uh, to what extent do you think they had a role in allowing uh, this large number of people to uh, immigrate to the U.S.? Well, uh, the State Department actually was an opponent, the only opponent that I found, of the idea of bringing the scientists into the United States. Uh, they, they were sort of the, uh, the, the conscience of the government in uh, opposing this plan when it was first secretly proposed, and they thought that this would be uh, a disaster if it ever came out publicly, which, which it eventually did. Um, there's one memo um, uh, to the State Department, uh, to an officer who had raised these concerns in about 1946, uh, uh, late 1945, early 1946, and the response from the Pentagon was that the State Department needed to get out of the way because those scientists were coming, and it was, quote, time to stop beating a dead Nazi. Uh, so the State Department, for all the anti-Semitism that was cleared during the war um, and, and continued in, in, in some parts of the, uh, of the agency in the department after the war, in that case, was, was the one that took the ethical high ground and deserves some credit for that. Yes. If if you have questions, maybe start lining up. That way, we can sort of keep things moving. Yes. You indicated that the spies seem to seem to be mediocre. Um, right. So I have two questions. One is, did the scientists actually do their job in terms of advancing whatever it is that America was trying to accomplish in terms of, I guess, the Cold War slash well, not Cold War, but I guess the Moon, and were there Nazis who were actually very effective spies? 
Yeah, uh, two questions. Did, did, did the Nazi scientists bring much of value, essentially, to the United States, and were there any spies who were good at their jobs? Uh, you, you know, the Nazi scientists clearly brought uh, a, a technological advantage to the United States, uh, putting the morality aside um, for the moment. Uh, it, it's clear that they gave us a leg up on the Soviets, and without them, we might not have reached the moon in 1969, but, uh, but might have reached it several years later. How, how much later, I, I think, is, is unknown and unanswerable. Um, but it, it's also clear that uh, this was part of a, a massive public relations, um, uh, I would argue, sham by the Pentagon in disguising the scientists as people they were not, because they realized that if their true role in war crimes um, became known, that even that technical advantage they brought to the United States would not be tolerated, that, that the United States did not have the stomach for using even gifted Nazi scientists who had been involved in uh, forcing tens of thousands of slave laborers to their deaths. And so that was, was essentially covered up for years. Um, the second question about the Nazi spies, were, were there any good ones? Um, yeah, sure, there, there were some. The, probably the, the, the best among the lot was a Nazi general by the name of Reinhard Gellin, um, who was used by the military, the U.S. military, and the CIA for years after the war. He had a whole network of um, ex-Nazi spies who were put to work in, uh, in Soviet-controlled uh, zones of Europe um, surveilling trade lines, trying to, trying to lay intercept cables, um, trying to, uh, to translate documents and, and perform other tasks that U.S. officials believe they didn't have the capability to do themselves. And Galen was such a prized asset that the, that the U.S. brought him to New York in 1951. They, they brought him to Yankee Stadium and uh, he watched the World Series game with Mickey Mantle and they rolled out the red carpet. Galen kind of held the U.S. in disdain. He took millions of dollars for uh, his spy work, but he refused to say who was really working for him and what their Nazi pasts were, and the United States didn't really press him. Um, and this was really a launching pad for him because he went on to be the first intelligence czar of, of West Germany after cutting ties with the United States in the 1960s. So he, he certainly brought intelligence benefits to the United States, uh, but for every Reinhard Gellin, there were two or three who brought uh, nothing of value in my view. Yes. Hi. Hi. Uh, can you talk about how this came to light, and were there any consequences for the scientists or for the U.S. government officials that had falsified the documents? There was only one Nazi scientist who was ever prosecuted. That was uh, Arthur Rudolph, um, who you see here. Uh, in 1981, after this new initiative by the Justice Department to identify Nazis, uh, the Justice Department's new office went after Arthur Rudolph, and uh, under threat of deportation, he voluntarily left the country and returned to Germany and lived out his life there. Uh, but there was a significant backlash from the Reagan White House, as I write about in the book, and you had people like Pat Buchanan, who was a fierce critic of, the, of what he called the hairy-chested Nazi hunters at the Justice Department, um, who believed it was wrong for uh, prosecutors to be going after men like Arthur Rudolph, who had uh, committed their, the, the latter half of their lives to U.S. space efforts. In fact, Rudolph got pensions from the Nazis, from NASA, and from the U.S. government. So he was getting it from all sides. Um, and he was the first and last Nazi scientist 
scientists ever prosecuted. There are about a dozen others under investigation in the 1980s, according to the records that I that I was able to get a hold of. None of them were ever prosecuted, um, and uh, the other cases simply fell by the wayside. No, no one was ever held accountable. I mean, there's, there's chock full of evidence, especially in the 1970s and 1980s, that you had the CIA especially really actively obstructing investigations uh, at the point when Justice Department prosecutors would begin to go after um, Nazis who had ties to the CIA. You had the CIA uh, whitewashing their records, denying the existence of documents in their own files, lying to the INS, um, but no one was ever held accountable for any of that. Oh, uh, with regards to the space race, to your knowledge, did the USSR adopt similar tactics in um, adopting, in a sense, Nazi scientists and spies of their own for the same purpose? Yeah, did, did the Soviets do the same thing, basically, was the question. Um, yes, they did, and, th- and that was certainly a, a driving force in Operation Paperclip, not only the Soviets, but the, but the French and the British, who were our allies, but we still wanted to leg up on them, too. They were all trying to recruit as many of the Nazi scientists as they could to replicate the success of these V-2 rockets. Um, the Soviets were throwing money at these people, and there were reports even that they were they were. Kidding kidnapping scientists. So this was clearly um, seen as, as a threat to the United States in this new Cold War and, and was um, the main motivation for, um, for bringing over hundreds of these scientists. Yes? Um, so you talked about uh, a lot of how there's a, you know, uh, the rationale behind it is a validation, uh, somewhat of a validation of the Nazi war crimes. Uh, what about uh, in terms of a spoils of war rationale that we won, we get to take their, um, their intelligence, their whatnot? Did you find any evidence of uh, anything like that or any other rationales? Yeah, there, there was, was certainly a feeling that, that uh, you know, the, the winners uh, reap the, the spoils of war. What was different about this was that in, in past conflicts in World War I and, and, and other conflicts before this, um, the United States and, and victors had always interrogated the, the scientists behind whatever, um, you know, uh, whatever munitions and material they, they were fond of. Um, they would interrogate them. They would seize their blueprints. They would take the hardware, usually on the battleground. What was different here that had never really been done before was that we brought all these people back to the United States, essentially to live as Americans. And they were told early on, um, you can stay here for as long as you like. You will be treated as an American. This isn't, you know, we're not going to just sort of grab your knowledge and send you home. And, and that was what set this apart, in my view, from, um, from past spoils of war. Yes? Uh, in uh, Stephen Kinzer's book, The Brothers, he describes... Uh, Alan Dulles, his role in bringing Nazis here. And his brother, of course, was John Forster Dulles, who was the Secretary of State. So did Forster Dulles know about Alan Dulles' role in bringing Nazi here? And and the State Department object to that? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about Alan Dulles um, uh, and John Foster Dulles, his, his brother. I, I write a lot about Alan Dulles, and, and uh, that gives me the chance to talk about him as well. Alan Dulles was, um, was a key figure uh, in this exploitation of Nazis in the new Cold War. Um, and, in fact, a couple of early chapters are devoted to him. Uh, there's a, a fascinating story that I, that, um, that I include in the book about Alan Dulles at the end of World War II as the top U.S. intelligence 
intelligence official in Switzerland, meeting with one of his counterparts, a Nazi general by the name of Karl Wolf. Even before the war was over, uh, Germany had not surrendered yet, but everyone realized that Hitler was, was going down to defeat. It was just a question of when. And Alan Dulles uh, met with General Wolf over a fireside in Zurich, and they shared scotch and talked in German about mutual acquaintances. Now, General Wolf was um, a, uh, a top aide chief of staff to SS Chief Himmler. And in fact, Wolf was the man who set up the train network that took millions of uh, people to their deaths in the concentration camps. And yet Dulles not only didn't confront him with his war crimes or, or lay hands on him or put him in cuffs, but instead often a sweetener for him to work with the Allies at the end of the war and afterwards. And in fact, for years, Dulles protected him and other Nazi generals from prosecution um, and saw them as people people who could help the United States in this, uh, in this new Cold War uh, and that their past war crimes were really irrelevant to him. As far as John Foster Dulles, his record does not, his name does not show up much in the record. I, um, he and his brother were both involved before the war in uh, representing German industrialists with ties to the Nazi party. But after uh, John Foster Dulles became Secretary of State, I would certainly not be surprised if, if he was, um, you know, well-versed on this with, with his brother Alan. Alan went on to become the CIA director in the 1950s under, the first CIA director under Eisenhower. But I, I haven't found um, specific documentation of that in the record. Thank you. Hi. Um, did the Mossad go after any of these uh, guys, and did it uh, have any impact on the um, U.S.-Israel relationship? Yeah, you know, Israel had sort of a weird role in all this. I, I talked about the capture of, of Adolf Eichmann in, in 1960 by the Israelis, and that which really uh, freaked out Otto von Bolschwing, who was living in New York at the time. But um, Israel uh, did not want back some of the Nazis who were caught in the United States in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, they felt that Eichmann had been such a signature moment, uh, someone of such a high level. They didn't want sort of the lower level, if you were just a concentration camp guard or a mid-level SS officer, the Israelis really weren't interested in, it, in them, as, as surprising as that may seem. Um, and the only time that they later agreed to accept someone back uh, under some pressure from the United States was in the case, uh, a famous case in Ohio of John Demyanyuk, uh, an Ohio auto worker, who was originally thought to be an infamous guard at Treblinka, Ivan the Terrible, not just, not just any guard, but someone of sort of monstrous um, bar barbarism. Um, who did all sorts of horrific things and, and seemed to, uh, to almost revel in torture. Um, and the Israelis did accept him back because they thought that this was, this was a Nazi of some prominence. But that case ended disastrously because the Israelis came to conclude that he was not, in fact, Ivan the Terrible. He was, he was a guard at a different camp at Sobibor, but he was not the notorious Ivan the Terrible. And they freed him from death row and sent him back to the United States. Uh, so that had a real chilling effect for years on Israeli-U.S. relations when it came to Nazis in the U.S. This is more contemporary, but in the fall of, this, of 2014, Congress passed this law denying Social Security benefits to right. all the living Nazis. I don't know how many there right. are that are living. Was it your book that may have precipitated this, or, and how are they tracking down these Nazis? 
Yeah, I, I, I talked about that in my book, and there was also a story that the Associated Press did about the fact that, that you had, it's a really a small number, a handful of Nazis living overseas who left the country voluntarily and so were collecting Social Security. Um, it was sort of an easy political moment for Congress, which um, doesn't do much anymore, to say we're actually going to do something and we're going to deny Social Security benefits to Nazis oh, because, so you know, who, who would oppose that? Yeah, yeah, it was really a small number and um, uh, it, it was, it, for instance, the case of Arthur Rudolph we talked about here. I mean, he was someone who left the United States voluntarily, so until his death, continued to collect Social Security along with his NASA pension and, and other, because he was never convicted of a crime. Um, so it, it's, it's a bit of a loophole in the law that allowed that to happen. Thank you. Do you yes. Know, do you know if China tried to um, recruit Nazi scientists as well? Because I know they also fought in World War II. Uh, I'm not aware of it. Um, it's not to say it didn't happen, but I'm not aware of any active recruitment by China, no. Mm. What role did American Nazi sympathizers play, such as Charles Lindbergh, Joseph Kennedy, in supporting or lobbying for these programs? That's a good question. I didn't find any evidence that sort of notorious anti-Semites like Lindbergh or, or, or Kennedy or Henry Ford or anything like that um, uh, were behind any of these programs or supporting them. I, I think that, that a number of those people were sort of chagrined and shamed after the war, you know, for their support for, or seeming support for the Nazis before the war, and so kept a lower profile. Um, but at the same time, I don't think their support was really needed because you had top U.S. officials like Alan Dulles and, and J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI uh, and, and others who were, you know, so, so firmly believing that, that these people could help the United States in national security interests. I guess one other. What sure. was behind Patton's anti-Semitism? Boy, I don't know. What was behind Patton's anti-Semitism? I, you know, I wish I could tell you. Uh, I, I don't know. All right. Thank you. Hi. Yes. Um, this kind of relates to the previous question, but I'm. Well, you give specific examples of uh, scientists and high-ranking Nazi officials, but I was wondering if the actual documentation. Um, is uh, the the wording has justification in um, like an anti-communist sentiment because the Nazis were obviously staunchly anti-communist and at this time our government was very concerned with that. So is the justification more of an anti-communist? Um, oh, oh, sure. The, the anti-communist sentiment was was certainly a, a big part of it, um, especially when it came to the Nazi spies. The belief was that that no one hated the Soviets more than the Nazis. They had been fighting them for years. They loathed them, um, and that the United States needed to to put that that knowledge uh, and hatred of the Soviets to use uh, with people like Otto von Bolschwing and Alexander. Lalekas, um, even though the government was was aware of their complicity with war crimes. So no, the anti-communism was, was at the heart of the use of the spies. And, and I'd say to a lesser extent, the scientists. I mean, the, we wanted the scientists, um, first of all, to help to help us send, send man to the moon, and second of all, to beat the Soviets. So, so certainly the anti-communist sentiment was behind that as well. Thank you. Hi. Any Hi. Um, comment or reference to Simon Wiesenthal's efforts here? 
Yeah, um, you know, Simon Wiesenthal was, uh, the question was uh, about Simon Wiesenthal's efforts. You know, he was focused mostly on, on Europe and Latin America. Um, that's where a lot of his, his highest profile um, uh, gets, I guess, were. Uh, and I think he probably believed wrongly that there were not many Nazis and Nazi collaborators who made it into the United States, so didn't focus a lot of attention here, unlike the journalist who I talked about, Chuck Allen, who, who believed that, in fact, there were, uh, there were many Nazis in America and believed that quite rightly. Um, one interesting case that I do talk about with Wiesenthal in the book uh, was a tip that he got in the early 1960s in, in Tel Aviv. He was at a cafe, and he was approached by three Holocaust survivors, three women, who knew of his reputation at that point um, and asked him about a, a woman um, who was a notorious guard at Majdanek, uh, and they wanted to know whatever happened to her. She was sort of the female equivalent of Ivan the Terrible, who was known for doing hideous things to inmates. And, and that conversation led Wiesenthal to try and track this woman down. Her name was uh, Hermione uh, Brownsteiner Ryan, Ryan. And he realized that she had managed to get into the United States and he forwarded that tip to, I'm happy to say, my own newspaper, the New York Times, uh, and a reporter was sent out in 1963 to knock on her door, and she tearfully acknowledged everything, um, but gave the usual, you know, what was I supposed to do uh, justification. Thank you. Thank you. We have time for two more questions. I want to have Professor Marcuse and our colleague here. So go ahead with your question first. I'm sitting here really shocked by the first part of your delivery. Um, you know, I was born two weeks before Pearl Harbor and have carried this image of American soldiers liberating concentration camps. And, um, you know, I was contrasted that with what's happened in some of our other wars like Vietnam. And, mm -hmm. um, and to find out that we kept... Um, you know, the, the survivors in the concentration camps under starvation conditions, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people continued to die is just appalling to me. Yeah, so I amazing. wish you yeah. would address more how, you know, this image of ourselves as the liberators has, you know, seemed to be perpetuated. Maybe I'm the only naive one, but I'm a PhD psychologist, so it's mm -hmm. not like I'm oblivious to the world. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we, we sort of, the policymakers sort of convinced themselves that, that conditions did improve from the truly horrific ones months after the war under Patton. You know, Patton, remember, died not that long afterwards. He was killed in this car accident, which is what Bill O'Reilly now writes in his best-selling book about. Um, so conditions did improve. People were not, uh, were not starving to death on a daily basis, but the fact is that they remained, you know, behind barbed wire under armed guard for, you know, often another four years. So, you know, maybe the conditions weren't just unthinkably abysmal, but they were still prisoners for a long time after that. And, you know, how that contrasts with the public image of, you know, the liberation of the camps is, is striking. And, and um, as I said, I think that was as shocking to me as anything in my research because I, and I think probably people at least of my generation, you know, know nothing about that. It's sort of been forgotten to history. E even though, you know, some of the things that I, that I spoke about, like that report from the Pennsylvania dean, you know, that actually got some headlines at the time. I, I, I was a little bit surprised that there were headlines saying, you know, Truman Aide says camps are run like Nazis ran them. Um, and that's just been forgotten to history. Thank you. 
Yeah, uh, at the beginning of your remarks, you uh, told us about this rumor, at least, of a secret report right. uh, that the State Department prepared. I presume there was no such report, or that you never f- saw that report. Oh, no, 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 there was. No, no, there that, was. That, that was a report that led to the story in the Times, the front page story that I talked about. Yes, so, so that was a Justice Department report that was uh, 600 plus pages about the, the history of Nazi hunting efforts. And that's what talked about, you know, Mengele's scalp and all that was in that report. Okay. Can, can you tell a little bit more about what an Initiated that? What change of public sentiment, and when that was that the the report got commissioned? And just a yeah, little bit more about the report the was um, this was a report prepared internally by the Justice Department. It was started in uh, around 1999, and uh, it took about seven or eight years to finish. And the thinking and commissioning it was that that the Nazi hunting office within the Justice Department, which was created around 1980, um, was an important part of the Justice Department's legacy and um, something a lot of people knew nothing about, and that this story uh, should be told in some formal formal mechanism. The irony was that the, the Justice Department itself then quashed the report and killed it, and that, that's how I heard about it, was that the Justice Department refused to put this out, I, I think partly because this was not an altogether rosy view of the government's relationship with, with Nazis. There were a lot of, a lot of missteps. There were obviously uh, actions taken by the CIA to help Nazis. You know, this was not the, the, the glowing view of, oh, hey, we're finding and deporting Nazis. And, um, you know, the, the government simply killed the report. And that's what, that's what essentially led to this book. I want to make a comment I think that's very um, um, telling about this story you've told us, uh, Eric, is usually people get out, get up and leave before the questions, but no one left. This is, I think, a, a tremendous compliment to you and to the importance and significance of this story that you've told. So on behalf of all of us, before you do your book signing, Um, I'd like to thank you for coming to Santa Barbara and sharing this uh, uh, story, uh, this hideous story in some respects with us. Thank you very, very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.